you know, first and foremost, thanks for coming on the show. Um, and, you know, in this climate right now, it's a whole lot of things happening, a lot, a lot of isms out there when you talk about social injustices and all that stuff. Just give me, like, your perspective on what you're seeing out there. Man, it's, it's crazy because, uh, you know, obviously, for those that don't know, I work with Barstool, and Barstool is um, a predominantly white audience, right? It's from 18 to 35, fratty white guys who want to drink beer and, you know, some are most, are, if not all, Republican conservatives who uh, really don't want to hear a rich, you know, a millionaire's take on, you know, the world. So um, I'm, you know, I had Jamie Dukes on who, who was on NFL Network um, on my podcast. My podcast is, is the two biggest podcasts and we talk about society and culture as well. And obviously we get, we, we have fun and, and kind of get in the weeds of culture. Um, but, you know, Jamie Dukes is somebody who spent two years in the NFL and me and him kind of had a spirited conversation, if you were, about Colin Kaepernick and how his thoughts about it. And and I had made the remark that, you know, the, you know, even though we call ourselves the United States, I think we're more divided than ever. And he and he said, well, I disagree with that. I think it's more of an awakening. And the more and more I, I was like, no, I think it's I think we're divided. And we kind of we went down a rabbit hole a little bit. But I think there was some truth to that in the regards that I think I've. And my, you know, I'm from the South Bronx, New York, born and raised. Um, I work closely with my community. You know, I got a backpack drive going down tomorrow in my in my, home, in my neighborhood. And I think the more you and you know the CB, the more you kind of get around people who uh, have status or have wealth, they sometimes forget that where they come from, and they they not that they forget where they come from, they they forget the struggle, um, yeah. and that everybody has that platform or the motivation to like you know to be a six seven forward. That could jump out the gym and hit the boards, you know, or a six-three uh, offensive tackle uh, who's just meaner than hell and built for the game. Um, and what I and I say all that that I think I'm coming through through my process and being um, socially in tune and becoming a social activist. I'm learning that I, the one thing you can't do right now is assume anybody or anybody that looks like you or talks like you is necessarily on your side or thinks like you. Um, and that's what's kind of that's just kind of like it's an awakening for me in that regard. Like, I think sometimes, you know, I, I don't know how you grew up, but I'm pretty sure, you know, you grew up in kind of that culture where, you know, your mom and daddy was like, oh, I don't you know. Oh, 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 Jimmy Earl over there. He, he wanted the brothers. He's down for the cause. You just assume he's on your side as far as his views and how he goes about things. And then when you have a one on one with Jimmy Earl, he's so far to the right about uh, different things that you're like, oh, damn, all the time. I thought he was one of us. And so you realize it's not that. Uh, assuming uh, judging a book by its cover and assuming how a person's views are will get your ass in trouble. Sorry for if I curse. Um, and now I'm learning through this process, especially dealing with the, the political um, aspect of what we're going through as, as a people right now is that we have to become more in tuned and more informed and more educated more than ever. Um, because if, if you're not, if you're not stepping to the table as far as having conversations uh, with a sense of knowledge and a sense of purpose, then nobody's really dealing with you. You know what I mean? You have to come armed and ready for the conversation to promote progress. So I'm just, I'm in this walk of just really trying to learn, listen more than ever, and then not assume, but to uh, aim our target as far as when I want to reach out for help or if I want to learn or if I want to do something that I know I'm aiming, I'm putting myself in a position with people who think and walk like me. Yeah, and I'm so glad you touched on being informed and being educated because like, like, I participated in a ton of marches. Like I was out here at Hollywood and Vine where I saw, and it felt like 
a million people was out there. Mm, yeah. So over 50 states, 18 countries, young people, black, white, all different walks of life. I never seen anything like that. But I felt like people were there as part of it. But being informed of having a call to action or what is your call to duty, you know, after this moment, besides the photo op, do you know why you're here? And my big takeaway was I wanted to take that experience and that pulse of that experience and then continue to educate, but also hold my elected officials account accountable. I have personal relationships with so many of them and just got off the phone with the Senator uh, Tammy Baldwin today where I was just like, this is what you should be doing in the Southeast region of Wisconsin. Talk to Cory Booker. This is what you should be doing, my brother, you know, in your region and in your area. And this is what you should be talking to your people about. So I'm interested to hear like, if you have a small platform or a large platform, what should you be doing actively? I know you're talk, you talked about it a little bit and you got a huge giveaway going on with backpacks and everything to further the education system. But like, what are some of the other things you think that people could be doing with their platforms? I think don't be afraid to have hard conversations, right? Like I have, so I have a morning show on, on Sirius XM channel 85 and I'm, and obviously I'm a black Hispanic and my co-host is, is, is also from New York. He's from Brooklyn. Like myself but he's irish and i think through our process of kind of growing our show we've changed our views so to speak i think we've both been able to kind of you know he was a wall street guy his name is mike mccarthy we call him large but he's a guy who's from the old school and he's on wall street for 25 years so he was he was in a mix of when black monday was happening the wolf of wall street so he was kind of when wall street was really setting the world on fire and his views on the world and my views on things we, we've I feel like during our relationship we've had hard conversations and we've both grown from them um and what I mean by being informed more than ever I think we have to stop being of afraid to have those uncomfortable conversations because sometimes and I've learned this through my media process is that if you if you allow somebody to kind of take a hold of your emotions by saying certain things then they can control you anywhere you they want you to go right so I think by educating yourself and saying no, yay, or kind of uh, being more uh, informed about race or politics or um, money, I think it puts you in a position where people now sit down and kind of you suppress their own emotions, but just by being informed. So uh, what I try to tell people when they're using their platforms, educate yourself, be honest, be authentic, and don't be afraid to go there, even though we're in the mix of a cancel culture, right? Everybody's canceling the shit out of everybody. Where if you say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing, it's like, get them out of here. You got to still face that dragon in the face if it's coming from a place of genuine truth. You know what I mean? Like, I, I sit down, I have some friends who are black conservatives, and some of the things really kind of, you know, feel like they set us back. But on, on top of that, there's some things I do agree with. And when I do have those conversations, though, I do kind of get in the mud with them a little bit. I, I feel like I get better from it because I'm more equipped to have those conversations with people who look like them or even people who are white conservatives who necessarily look at me, uh, a 60 black man with dreads, gold chain dripping. They're like, oh, I'm, I've seen your type before until they hear me open my mouth. And they're like, oh, well, you, you may be different. So you got to have that. You got to kind of you got to kind of go there and grind and grind and not be afraid and not be over emotional about things. And I think that's my biggest transformation right now. I think a lot of athletes. You know, I know you I know you work closely with the NBA. We're doing a lot. We're showing a lot. We're stepping ourselves out there. But we got to put our nose in nose with people who disagree with us to, to honestly create change and not be afraid of it. I love the fact that you said uncomfortable conversation and speaking truth to power. 
because we have so less of that happening. You know, people just kind of just giving you the sound bite, mm -hmm. and full story, just telling you what you want to hear and the call to action get distorted. But how did we get to this point? I know that you're a former NFL Super Bowl champion and What's also up? media mogul, and we cannot leave that out. And you're having your impact on social change and all that stuff. But it didn't start there. And I want to start at the beginning. You know, you was in the Bronx, uh, Cardinal Hayes High School. Yes, uh, sir. Home of Jamal Mashburn. Oh, uh, yeah, that's the Hey, Jamal, low-key, Jamal is like one of my favorite players of all. Okay. I model so much in my game and then his transition into uh, the yeah. best space with franchise and everything. Yeah, he's a beast with it. Mm -hmm. what, what was your aspirations like coming up in the beginning? Was it always football? No, it, 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 it was weird, man, because I grew up in the South Bronx. So, like, most New Yorkers – like you may know or do know, you know, there's no way to there's nowhere to play football, right? It's just it's hoops, it's hoops to die. So I was just I was a, I was able to become a good offensive lineman because I, I learned how to move my feet at an early age, just playing basketball or going against guys who were bigger than me or maybe just quicker than me. And for me, I grew up during the time with the Giants or Lawrence Taylor was it, man. Like he he was the king of New York, and I loved him. And he was you know he had a recklessness to him, and he was vulgar, he was mean. Everything that Lawrence Taylor was able to say on TV, I wasn't allowed to say in my house. And I loved it. You know what I mean? I loved that outlaw about him. So I didn't start playing football until I was roughly 14 years old when I got to high school. And I remember I was late to training camp. Why? Because I was hooping all summer. You know, in New York, you're playing in four or five different tournaments as a kid. you jumping from taxi to taxi, hitting train to train. So I, they sent a letter home kind of, you know, telling everybody, you know, this is when training camp started. I had missed it. I actually had showed up to uh, – I think the first week of school, they were saying the football team, you got practice at three o'clock. I ran downstairs. There was a coach by the name of Wild Bill Jensen. He had these thick ass Coke bottle glasses and he was old school. He was smoking a cigarette. And I went to all boys school, obviously, uh, in, in the city. And I showed up and I, he was, I was just like, coach, you know, where do I sign up to play football? He said, sign up. You don't miss the whole month of damn football. You know, the team's already set. And this I was like, already. yeah, he's like, this, we already locked. He's like, we got our first game Saturday. He's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, damn, I missed it. But he looked at me. He was like, how, he's like, how old are you? I was like, man, I just, you know, I'm 14. And he was just like, you're a big son. He's like, what shoe? He's like, what's your shoe size? I was like, well, my, you know, I'm, I'm a 14. He's like, you're a 14 and wear a 14. I was like, yeah, my, my shoe size grow with my age. <laughs> so it's thank God it stopped at 17. So I wear a 17. Damn. Uh, yeah. And like, and I'm not as tall as you, right? Yeah, I'm only a 14, bro. I wish I was a 14. I could wear all the cool stuff like you do. I gotta wear all the oddballs and like the the, the 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 mailman sneakers and stuff. So, uh, so I was able to play football, man. And he got me in there, and I played. And I just, it's, it was just my. I knew it, it was my calling, man. I just don't know how to explain it. I know a lot of people, they know when they know. I remember, I dog, I'd be one hundred with you. There was times, you know, by the grace of God, when I when I was at Pittsburgh and we were going through our glory years because we had a lot of good years in the Berg, man. I would just after practice kind of break down crying. Because I just if like when you feel like you this is where you belong, like even when things are hard, like you like hell, you went to UConn, you know how cold it gets, right? I yeah. mean, my doors would be frozen. I would have to wake up twenty minutes earlier, uh, past, uh, twenty minutes earlier, get a hot pan of uh, get a boiling water, throw it in my car to defrost my doors, so I can get in there. My knees are swollen, my shoulders are hurting, and we got Baltimore on Sunday, which was a, which I was our rival, and 
I loved it. I just loved everything. I loved the grittiness. I loved the toughness of the city. It was always goddamn gray. You know, people on Fridays walking around with their jerseys. So I embodied everything Pittsburgh was and kind of that blue collar mentality. And I never and I had my up and down years because I got injured uh, towards the back of my career a lot. But I was I just loved everything. I remember I would break down kind of just because I would I knew guys and I maybe you can contest this. I knew guys who were working jobs that it was killing them every day. They were just, they were so, they were doing things that wasn't their passion or they just, they missed their opportunity. And so they were doing a nine to five job just to make ends meet. And I was just so thankful to wake up every day and God chose me to be a professional football player. And I just, it was my everything, man. In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into a school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school traditionally filled with black and brown students. After a number of white families arrived, she investigated the school's history and finally realized what kept getting in the way of making the school better. White Parents. Nice White Parents is made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, the same people who made cereal in S-Town. Launch CTA is now through 819. It's available everywhere, wherever you get your pods. Ben CTA, 820 and beyond. All episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm grateful for it all. And so my my upbringing, you know, going to Cardinal Hayes, going to Hofstra, then, you know, obviously being drafted in the fourth round, 131 to the Pittsburgh Steelers right after they won the Super Bowl in 2005, where they beat the Seattle Seahawks. That was Jerome Bettis' last game in Detroit to land, you know, a, a small, you know, a, a, you know, a knuckleheaded bronze kid to land in Pittsburgh to play for a, a storied organization where people uh, pretty much took me in right away. Um, you know, I, I'm blessed that I have, I, I have enough fame, right? There's always that thing. What's your fame look like? I, I'm God gave me enough fame. Cause I don't know if I could be as big as Eddie Murphy or Justin Bieber or one of them nut jobs. God gave me enough fame to 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 uh, put me in a position where I know I'm blessed, and I'm I'm just thankful for it all, every day. I'm, I'm I'm glad you stayed engaged with that, and I, I'm I'm just really happy that you kept touching on you know faith and you know God bless you mm-hmm. to extreme measures. But also, I want to go back to Hofstra sure. University because we see a lot of kids right now in the midst of a the pandemic. They're learning remotely. They're not being able to get that college experience, but you chose Hofstra, and I want I want to hear it in your own words for a particular yeah. year, to be close to your family. But yeah. also, was that like weight bearing on you as far as like having family or having access to your family or you know all the things that come with that? Yeah, man. So so my issue was I was I was a very poor student. Um, I was a very good athlete, but I was a poor student. So valid. I had a lot of D one schools peeking around, seeing what was going on with me. But ultimately, I had they wanted to send me to JUCO, and I had a lot of fear about going to JUCO because I had buddies who had went and never made it anywhere. Like they got lost in the sauce, and they ended up going back home. So Hofstra uh, allowed me to go there, rest her, get my grades up. But in the meantime, I wasn't going to go to Hofstra. I was going to go to UMass, man. Um, I wanted, I fell in love with UMass, uh, but my mom had got sick. She, she's no longer with us, but she had lupus, and I just I was terrified of being in Boston. And for some reason in my head, Boston seemed like I was going to goddamn Colorado. I don't know why. It's literally, I, I drive to Boston all the time. It's really five hours away from me. Uh, but in my head, a kid who never left the projects, Boston seemed like an eternity away. And I was just terrified 
if she was to have an episode or something was going on with her, I wouldn't be able to go back home. And I was really fortunate that at the time, Hofstra had just won the Atlantic 10 uh, in football. So they had a really good team and they were really an up and coming team. And it, for me, I had switched my mind and I was like, you know what? Because at the time, UMass had Mark Whipple um, and Adrian Morrell. And I was like, no, I'm going to go to Hofstra. Uh, it's closer to home. If anything's happened, I could jump on the LIR. I'd be in the Bronx in 30 minutes. So for me, it was all about my mother. That's why I chose Hofstra. And it was one of the best things that I, one of the best decisions I made. Yeah, and I know that they're glad that you chose them as well because mm -hmm. of all the success that they had. But, you know, I think that success is, is extremely crazy. Like when you win your first couple of years, like you look at, you know, Patrick Mahomes and yeah. all the success that he's had. And how did winning in your third season make you feel about because I know you talked about the grid and ground grind and the gray skies and all this yeah. body but did you think it wasn't come relatively easy all the time because you won so soon no man it see my I see for me it was a little different because like I said I got to the Steelers right after they had won the Super Bowl so I kind of you know it was weird because the city was so crazy about the Steelers even though I ain't done shit and won shit they would treat me like I had one so I was, you know, I was showing up like Ray Loder. I was going through the back door. Hey, Willie, hey, Willie, here's the table up front. You know, I was parking my car anywhere. The girls loved me. And I was like the new kid on the block. I was a kid with the New York accent. Who, you know, even though everybody had that Pittsburgh kind of swing, I still had the Yankee fit in the gold chains. So people were just, you know, kind of, I was kind of like an enigma walking around. And then my sec, my first year when uh, when I had Bill Cower, Bill Cower had left. The second year we had, Mike Tomlin had got there. And when Mike T got there, he had went to William and Mary, so he knew my story. Um, and at the time, I was competing with a guy who's like my big brother right now by the name of Max Starks. And he said to me, he goes, listen, I'm going to give you one opportunity. One opportunity. You want this job? I'm going to give it to you, but you're going to have to fight like a dog. Now, mind you, Max Starks is the guy, when I got drafted, CB, I had a draft party in the city in Midtown. There was a bar. It was like this I think it was called Duckies or something, but it was a Steeler bar. So I had went there, took all my people, and we got buck crazy. Max Starks happened to be in the city at the time, walking by the bar. And the only reason he stopped, because there was like a big inflatable Steeler in front of the bar. And so he stops, and it because, you know, he had just won a Super Bowl. So he goes, oh, maybe some of my teammates are in there. So he sees the guy at the door, and he goes, hey, what's going on in here? You know, I played for the Steelers. Are there Steelers in here? He goes, nah, he's just one guy. He just got drafted. And he goes, who got drafted? He goes, Willie Colon, he's from New York. He's inside. You want to go meet him? So the guy, so Mike's like, no, I don't want to interrupt the part. I just want to see what he looks like. He looks in, I'm on top of the bar, shirtless, pouring drinks down people's mouth, right? So I'm I'm out of control. And so the next time I meet, and so the next team, next time I meet Max Starks, man, is in the locker room of Pittsburgh. And he's, he's, he's like, hey, man, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I saw you on your draft day. Um, you look like you're having a good time. I know you're new to the city. Let me take you under my wing, show you how I roll. So he was literally big bro for me. And it was amazing. So here we go. Two years later, I'm in a competition battle with this dude. And Mike Tomlin is like either sink or swim. I know he's your homie, but this is your opportunity. And I went shark eyes on him. I stopped talking to him. I stopped hanging out with him. I mean, he he was a dude that was getting because he he wore 18, I wore 17. He's the only dude I could trade a sweatshirt with, right? We were both big dudes. And that that transition was like for him because he was like a Super Bowl champ. He was a, doing the chunky soup commercials. He was everything. And I was just like this rough and tumble kid from New York who kind of had a bad attitude. I was just so hungry. I wasn't going to let the opportunity go. So that moving on from that, 
I ended up winning the position, thank God, uh, playing my first year. And then the next year came around. Uh, I was so I was so enthralled with this. Like, listen, I'm never going to let this go. But our defense was so good that year that it carried our team. We had like the number one ranked def- defense. And historically, we were, we're still on t- in top of the charts uh, with everything. But I learned that year we had learned we had lost two guys, two senior guys on the office line due to injuries early. So now I became kind of the leader of that office line. And we went through a lot of woes, man. And we had we had a right guard by the name of Darnell Stapleton on our Super Bowl team, uh, who was out of Rutgers, who was a priority free agent, uh, who had just got his knee scope uh, before his last preseason game. And if he didn't, they told him if he didn't play in that preseason game, they were going to cut him. So he had to play. And he ended up playing, playing well. And he ended up starting two weeks later because the right guard that was starting in front of him went down with a torn uh, Achilles. And then our left tackle went out. By the name of Marvell Smith, he gets he goes down because of his back. The guy who I took his spot, Max Starks, he goes to left tackle. So you have this makeshift line really playing behind this historic defense. And mind you, they signed Big Ben uh, Roethlisberger to a huge deal. So you got this kind of patchwork offensive line trying to protect the hundred million dollar quarterback with a defense that's winning a bunch of games for you. And every time something went wrong, it was the offensive line's fault because we weren't good enough. We weren't playing, and really. It was the, one of the best things that happened to us because it felt like the world was coming down on us. And the, the city of Pittsburgh was like, listen, y'all can win a Super Bowl, but if y'all don't, it's going to be because of the offensive line. We gave up 49 sacks that year. Um, we weren't very good in the beginning. Towards the end, when we kind of huddled up and we kind of lock, started locking arms as a unit, we became better, better. We became grittier. We became tougher. Uh, and we ended up winning the Super Bowl in dramatic fashion. And if you hear Ben Roethlisberger say in his press conference, he goes, how he goes, hey, offense line, who's laughing now? And because it's true, you know what I mean? And he and it, he really stood by us because the media, the world was dragging us. If the Steelers don't win the Super Bowl, it's going to be because of those five guys up front. And we had to hear it every goddamn day, every minute. So we we really got tougher. We got tighter. We got stronger. And we became fearless. And that's what makes that year, that Super Bowl year, so great. It wasn't winning the Super Bowl. It was the journey. It was the journey itself really pushing through that grinding through that so much doubt so many injuries my my center justin hartwork played that game with a torn mcl he couldn't even stand up um literally they they he couldn't even practice that week they shot the hell out of his knee up he played that game i'm playing with you know my knees uh, i i think i got i think i got shot up twice that game um so you talk about guys who really had to go through the mud fight drag crawl we played baltimore three times and baltimore had a, just a historic defense led by ed reed you know ray lewis and all these guys um we had to fight them three times and to come out victorious man to get to the super bowl i tell everybody that the trophy is amazing thank god i'll always be a champion but going through that year that journey with the team and those guys means the world i'll never forget it it seemed like it made you a champion, you know, just outside of football as well, but in life because of those experiences. Yeah. Uh, part question for you. Why is it so important for us to have, like, the proper mentors or uh, the, the guidance, you know, in the midst of that transition, like you going to Pittsburgh and having someone that you can lean upon that can show you the ropes on how to yeah. navigate through that space? And another thing is – you know, we always talk about these historic rivalries where you're talking about Green Bay and, you know, <laughs> the Bears. We're talking yep. about all different teams. And the Baltimore Ravens and the Steelers never really get that, I feel, that that recognition when you're talking about some of the biggest rivalries in professional sports. 
Yeah. So the first part, I think the, the mentorship, first of all, I, I think you may attest that the locker room, when I got into the locker room um, in 06, uh, there were only three guys. It was me, Chris Kimoatu, and Trey Axis. We were both 20, I was 22, he, they're 23 and 24. The rest of our unit was in their 30s. So you talk about guys who, you know, those three guys who I just mentioned, uh, even Max Stars, he's a little younger too. You talk about us as a four in that in that office and line room. We were talking about partying, being with the hoes, drinking, living that ball player life. And the rest of the room was like, listen, I got to go after that practice. I got to go home and do homework. You know, I got to go home and deal with the wife. I got to go home and be a grown man to my family and be responsible. So it forced me to be respectful to the room. Right. And also be respectful to the guys in their time, because that's what football and being a pro is time management. So instead of me being on the field, having these mental errors or kind of doing things over because I was the guy messing up, it forced me to be more in tune with my playbook and things I needed to do to further along the progress of the team um, in that unit. So and I was having conversations about with grown men about being a grown man because football is football, right? It, it's you can learn the skill set and you can develop, you can get better. But being a grown man, how to handle the pressure, how to ha- handle relationships, how to not to be immature about different relationships, how to be never burn the bridge, but also be honest and and be, and, and put your courage uh, first instead of being, you know, I think we're in the one thing I hate about this, the state of sports right now, when a ball player has a problem, what do they do? They scrub their social media. Right. That's kind of the send a smoke signal to the front office or the power or the fans that they have a problem in house. We didn't do that. Like if you had a problem with the Steelers. There was a door that you could walk through and have a conversation with the Steelers. We didn't have to go the via route of talking to social media. We didn't disrupt the locker room. You, Willie Cologne, 74, if you have a problem with Mike Tomlin, go talk to Mike Tomlin or you go through your agent. Um, so they taught me how to be a man and just how to handle women. Like we, I had a lot of things I talked about um, off the field. They were kind of able to kind of coach me up what to do, how to stay out of situations, who to look out for, yada, yada, yada. And so just kind of having that that kind of blanket of just like, listen, young blood, you can be all right if you just follow us. Right. And so I was fortunate to have a lot of people in my corner who really cared about me as a, a, a human being and, and, a, and a brother in, a, in arms rather than a guy, another guy with a helmet. Yeah. Um, my, my, my sorry, my your second question. I think the Ravens and Steelers do get a lot of a lot of love uh, as far as robbery. The issue now is. How we played the game when I was in there, you can't. I mean, you get thrown out of games. I mean, we were looking to hurt each other, and that's the difference. Like, we were looking to really knock each other out. If we, I mean, if you go, uh, CB, if you go to see Heinz Ward, to Troy, to uh, Palomalo, to how we played those games during those four or five-year spans, I mean, if we saw a guy slipping, we was going to put him to sleep. And I, But it was on both sides. It was it, – it was, we would look at each other like we going to empty the clip. You know what I mean? And so – Though that type of mentality, like it's funny because I do a lot of I, I Bart Scott is one of my good friends and I played against him a lot. Um, and he talks about it honestly on his from coming out of the uh, Ravens locker room. There was no love loss. Like it was it was serious. Like I know a lot of people could not you see guys at the end of the game. They they trade jerseys. They smile and they hugging. That was none of that shit. It was just like it was like, dog, this is the game you don't want your mother to watch. Like every figure as a parent. You have for your kid playing football. This is the game you don't want to watch because we were, we were trying to hurt each other out there. Like we were trying to go get it. And valid, they made me love in the off season. Like we see, we you know if I saw T Suggs or somebody, like oh yeah, what up, homie? You know I'll see you when I see you. 
But when we got on those lines, man, we were going for knockout shots. It was just, it just was what it was. And the NFL promoted it, right? They, I mean, there were there were times where you would watch Steeler Ravens leading up to that week. Like you would see highlights of us knocking the hell out of each other. And when we looked at each other, sometimes we were so exhausted just from the pure emotion to uh, arriving into the game that by halftime, like, damn, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this game because it was so physical. Um, and you kind of had you had to keep your head on a swivel because if a guy had a shot to take, they were going to take it. And that was just the nature of the rivalry. So I do think we get a lot of love, um, but I don't think it would ever be like the Steelers and Ravens today would ne- can never match what it was back then. There's an exciting new podcast out from Dimwit, Resistance. Inspired by the summer's protests, these are new stories from the front lines of the movement from Black Lives, told by a generation fighting for change, hosted by Saheed Tajan Thomas Jr. Resistance is out on Spotify. Take a sneak peek and listen here. One, two, three, boom! On May 29th at 10 a.m., I got a text message about a protest from a friend. Grabbed my bag, had my goggles. I knew what to do. I, like, put on some pants because I was wearing my pajamas. Covered my entire face. Combat boots. Took our bikes, got on the train, and we just hit the streets. I was like, let's go, let's go, let's go. When people all around the world first started going outside and protesting this summer, I'm kind of ashamed to say I was on my couch playing video games. I convinced myself that I was staying home because I didn't want to catch coronavirus, but honestly, I was afraid of being let down again. We've been here before. I know I have. I've marched, I've yelled, and yet we keep ending up right back here again. So how come when protests started this summer, people kept saying over and over again, this time is different? What were they talking about? What were they seeing? So I went out. From Gimlet, I'm Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr., and this is Resistance, a show about people refusing to accept things as they are. People putting their lives on the line. I got sped on, kicked, called the N-word. They started pulling out their batons. They started charging at people. And the next thing I realized, I had like five police officers beating me up. People becoming leaders. Everybody! They are trying to strike fear in our hearts! And people becoming targets. These motherfuckers knock on my door at 7 a.m. They're going to one day eating this We're just trying to get you to come outside. My first instinct was to run. And some people, like me, who've been feeling hopeless for a long time now, are suddenly finding reasons to smile again. Let me see that black joy, baby. And low-key, they're turning the movement into the move like the summer jam or Coachella of protests. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's a vibe. I follow this movement for months now, and honestly, I still have more questions and answers. Like, how can we make sure this time really is different? What can we learn from the people who've been here before? And how do you keep on resisting when everyone else stops showing up? Look at everybody going back to normal, man. What the fuck for? This ain't normal. Resistance premieres October 14th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Black Lives, baby. Man, all the stuff that you just talked touched on when you talk about the physicality of what that visual looked like, man. I remember watching some of those games, man, and just you just made me revisit all those moments. Mm-hmm. 
different, bro. Competition at its at, at its here amplified. I used to have anxiety. I wouldn't sleep three days before the game. Seriously. Really? I, I, yeah, I would have so much anxiety because you CB, you played a long time, brother. Imagine. So I used to, one of my people asked me who's the hardest guy I ever had to play against. That was, it was a guy by the name of Lodi Nada, man. He was just as big as I was. He was just as tough. He was just as physical, just as mean, just as fast. So if you're going to get somebody who could debunk all your superpowers, what's the <laughs> only thing you can do? I gotta fight this motherfucker, right? Like I just gotta fight. I just seriously, like that's that was that's what that's how we. That's why I would have the anxiety because my footwork couldn't beat him. He was just as strong. He was just as mean. He was just as tenacious. He was just as gritty, and he had a bunch of other goons to back his play style up. And we were we kind of had a bunch of guys who were just a rough, rough and uh, rugged. So if you have kind of that nose to nose, we can get it however you want to get it. The only oper- the only option left is just all right. Throw the gloves off, bro. Let's just see who's gonna die. And I and I say that tongue in cheek, and I because I know you use dying football, people go crazy. But it was kind of like that bloodlust. Like we just gonna we just gonna go at it, man. To one person ain't gonna come out of here. One of my favorite scenes is in the Dark Knight with the Joker, played by Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger, um, and he's standing there with two goons, and he has a broomstick, and he cracks it in half. He goes, "Whoever makes it out, you're on my team. You, you know, I'm taking you." That was kind of like that was kind of like the Baltimore Ravens Steelers. Like, listen, I don't know who's gonna make it out of here, but whoever makes it out of here is going normally is going to end up going to be in, being a champion. And that's how our mindset. We didn't blink. We were fearless. And both teams was just like, man, here we are. Let's just knuckle up. So it it had that type of it had that type of mystique, man. And I would have anxiety, bro, for like starting Thursday. Like, I, I would get up three o'clock in the morning and just be looking at the mirror, like, dog, I, you got to show up. This is it. That's why I like football and love football, actually. And that's why I love, you know, game sevens in the NBA because that's what it comes down to. It's yeah. about bills and people just going to give you your all and let the chips fall where it may. It is what it is, homie. Yeah, man. But I, before I let you go, I want to talk about your foundation. It provides yes, please. education and sports programming and uh, support the fight against uh, lupus, which I know you're going to touch on. But how rewarding is that to be able to give back and plant seeds in your community? You know, it's, it's different because I it's not different. I shouldn't say that. I think for me, there was nobody that looked like me coming from where I came from. Right. There's nobody who there was nobody I could point on a wall, even as much as I love um, my high school, Cardinal Hayes. I didn't you know, you talked we talked about Jamal Bassmer early. I never met Jamal Bassmer. He never came back. Yeah. So there was a lot of guys who. I just my my role models were the dope dealers, were, were the guys who were actually doing bad in the community. And my mom and dad have put too much work and invested into in me. You know, one of my biggest and thank God I've never done this. Um, my mom never had to open up a jail cell to free me, you know. So but I know a lot of kids who didn't have a mom and dad at home, who didn't have that 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 security or that 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 kind of escape. You know, a lot of kids out here are just fending for themselves, trying to figure it out in a doggy dog world. So now that I have been in a platform and kind of in the position I am, thanks, thanks to my wife, Akisha, um, I'm able to lock arms with her. Uh, I'm able to lock arms with uh, Junior Martinez and Alfredo and Jasmine, uh, my business partner, because I own a beer garden in the Bronx uh, called Birch and Hops. It's on 65 Brooklyn Boulevard. And we have two other businesses. Um, and we and our dive is, you know, our goal and mission is to keep it local. Um, and so I hand out, I got the back-to-back uh the backpack school drive going on Saturday. Um, I got, you know, Thanksgiving, we hand out over th- a thousand turkeys, you know, Christmas time. I, sh- I show up, I dressed up as Santa and I give out gifts to the community. 
Um, and I continue to do things like that, not for the notoriety, CB, because at the end of the day, like I said, I have I've achieved enough fame in my eyes. Right. Whatever God has for me, obviously, I'll, I will walk to it. But for me, I look at kids who show up. No, you know, you tell shoes have been run down. You know, they, they haven't had a bath in two days. Um, you can tell like when, when we serve them food that they light up because that's you don't know the meal. That's probably a meal they haven't had in two days. So that's my that's my reality of, of being in touch and being in, intertwined with that community is that these kids need help. The people need help. They need a way. They need to see that there's better outside of these project walls. And if you know, like and, I'm, and I, I once again, I'm assuming, you know, when you're dealing with your own people at times, it can be tough. It can be flat out tough, man, because they don't see it. They don't, you know, my reality to their day-to-day reality isn't the same. So I'm always empathetic and sympathetic to how they react to, you know, seeing toys or seeing a bunch of food or doing things that, you know, sometimes you got to be patient. So I'm, I'm, I'm always mindful of being patient with our people in our community, but also trying to show them that, listen, if you do right, and you give yourself a shot and you don't let money be your obstacle because that's that's what I hear. Well, I don't have money to do that. I don't, you know, that that looks like it costs a lot of money. Money should never be an obstacle. If you want anything bad enough, you got to just go get it, but you got to be focused and you got to train your discipline, which I try to tell a lot of kids um, through my foundation. Train your dif- uh, discipline. It's easy to have dreams, right? Dreams cost. Um, and what are you willing to pay that pay for those dreams? Or you want to get up every morning, train yourself. If you want to be after you want to get up, train yourself when nobody's watching when you, nobody's tapping you on the back. You know, if you want to be a, a writer or actor, are you doing things to kind of train your discipline? And so I'm always talking to kids in that regard. And my foundation, uh, and I'm also on the Alliance for Lupus Research uh, board, because uh, once again, my mother has lupus. Our golf outing is Monday in Canoe Brook, New Jersey. And it's really to build um a connection with a lot of doctors who are trying to make a a better a better tomorrow for lupus patients as far as getting medication new cures and new regimens uh to help uh people who are affected by lupus so i have all that going on but my goal man is you know just leaving the door open for somebody man and that's and that's honest to god i want some kid who comes from my neighborhood or who i've had encounter with or even a parent or adult but listen you know, the door is never closed. You just got, if I could leave it open, you just got to walk through it and do what you made with it. But just don't drop, uh, drop you know, don't drop the opportunity or, or the time and just be conscious of it. Just be conscious that everything is not given to you. You got to fight like hell to get it. Yeah, I'm a strong believer in that too, brother. Like, you know, seeing is believing and I feel like, you know, I echo everything that you just said. You know, the same things that you're doing in your community, I'm doing with mine. Uh, I'm trying to do with my platform. On the national level is you know give back in a major way inform and educate and i think ultimately that leads me to the next question and my last question is you know what do you want your legacy to be what do you want to be remembered most for with all this valuable uh priceless unprecedented work that you're doing it's a great question man um credit todd man because he hit me with that he texted you like yeah cb is going to ask you this make sure you're on your own point and i've been stewing with it for two days and it's honest to god man i just want people to understand you can never give up if you give up on yourself then you're done never give up no matter how bad it looks always see it through um i i, I want to i have a seventh month year old son and i look at him sometime and you always want your kid to be as tough as you right but I really just, if I was to have my legacy, if somebody was to say, talk about me, um, like your dad was tough. He was loyal to his family and his community and he was faith driven, but he was also, you know, he was authentic. And 
I think that's all you can really ask from any individual. Like we all going to have our good and bad sides, right? To everything. But one thing you can never do is never not learn from your mistakes or think you're too, or, or just think you're too holier than thou to make a mistake, right? We're all human at the end of the day and we all got to have a forgiving heart. I think every man is deserving a second chance. Um, but I'm also conscious that, you know, in, in this doggy dog world we live in, if you want it, you got to go get it. You got to you got to kind of put your nose to the ground and eat and eat dirt for a little bit and grow out of that and, and get bigger and get stronger. Um, and always. And I tell everybody and I learned this from uh, Coach Tomlin, and he's been 100 percent right as I get older and older. One of the biggest skill sets you can um, learn to do is listen. Um, if you learn to damn listen and shut your mouth before you talk, you you'd be surprised of how much of a better person you can become. And I think, you know, you have this great platform. I have my platforms, you know, once again, on Barstool Breakfast, Channel 80, uh, uh, Series XM. I have two bigs podcasts, Society and Culture with my co-host, Brandon uh, Newman. And uh, I have my other football podcast going deep. Um, through all that I have going on, even my foundations, man, there's a time before I meet anybody, I sit back and I just listen, you know, because I know what I want to talk about. I know what I have to say, but I don't know what anybody else has to say if I don't just shut my mouth and just listen. So I'm constantly just in my own space trying to listen to different people talk and dive into different conversations because that's the only way you get better. Okay. I appreciate that, Brian. That's, that's exactly what I expected after reading your bio and watching your work and seeing the way that you have been advocating in all these different spaces. I knew that the response would be somewhat to those lines, but I'm glad you said it exactly the way you said it, man. It hit it hit home, and I know our viewers and listeners are going to be better from this conversation as well. Thank as I. you. So I appreciate that, King, man. Keep inspiring and keep doing God's work. Thank you, man. I've always been a fan of your work, man. I've, I watched you from the UConn days when you had the even Steven haircut. It's good to see you with a little hair on your head, man. You get you get a floss oh, on. Oh, <laughs> it's that COVID growth, <laughs> right? But continue the great work, my brother. I, I like I said, I've I've been a fan of your career. I know you played a long time, and then what I think is important for a lot of athletes like you and myself is is not to just have the platform; it's to be responsible with it. Um, and I think you've done a great job with that. So once again, thank you for having me on there. Appreciate you, King. Thank you. Always. Thank you.